The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Supreme Court could invent something like a clear statement rule or an analogy to the so-called major questions doctrine. The, you know, the court is capable of deflecting hard issues if they think that people haven't sort of dotted their I's and crossed their T's in terms of forcing the federal judiciary to decide a you know, really momentous constitutional question. So you could imagine the Supreme Court saying, well, theoretically, state legislative power might exist in this context without prior congressional approval, but we're not going to go down that road until the state legislature has made it unambiguous that they want to assert that kind of power. So that's why I think a state legislature, and it really only takes one to get it to the U.S. Supreme Court, but if one state legislature said, you know, we really want to do this, I think that's the best way to tee up a a decision in advance of the election. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for September 6, 2023. As the 2024 presidential election inches closer, legal scholars are hotly debating whether former President Trump's actions in relation to January 6th might have disqualified him and many others from public office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But far less attention has been given to how precisely this disqualification should be implemented so as to bring the ultimate issue to the Supreme Court for decision, preferably before the 2024 election is underway. To discuss these issues, I recently sat down with two leading election law experts and friends of the podcast, Professor Ned Foley from The Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law and Professor Derek Muller of the University of Notre Dame Law School. We discussed how Section 3 might be interpreted, the ways it might be implemented in relation to former President Trump, and what other avenues for enforcement might apply against other people facing a similar possibility of disqualification. It's the Lawfare Podcast for September 6th, How to Implement Section 3 Disqualification, with Ned Foley and Derek Muller. So for the last few weeks, we all have been digging back into a topic that has been bouncing in and out, I would say, of the public consciousness since January 6, 2021. And that is the question of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a provision that proposes to install a disqualification from public office from a variety of people involved with insurrections uh, and related sort of acts, but that hasn't been heavily used and has a lot of open questions about its scope, how it can be applied, what exactly it means applied to this more modern context compared to the 1860s when it was originally enacted as part of the 14th Amendment. For this podcast, we're going to talk about how we actually get to an answer to that, how we implement this. We're not going to substantively debate as much of the scope questions and other issues that ultimately are going to be decided by public officials of one stripe or another. 
we're going to talk about the process that actually determines who decides that and when and how. But I do think we need to kind of set the ground for folks who may not have been following this debate and kind of why it's back in the public consciousness now. Ned, why don't we start with you on that? Tell us a little bit about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and why we're seeing the chatter about it, the discussions about it rev up again after, frankly, a a kind of quiet couple weeks and months on that front. Sure. And thanks for having me on this uh, to discuss this. So as you said, this was this provision was adopted after the Civil War as part of the 14th Amendment, and it was designed basically to keep people who had been part of the, the government uh, before the Civil War and therefore had taken an oath to support the U.S. Constitution, but that had betrayed that oath by either joining the Confederacy or aiding the Confederate cause in some fashion from re-emerging back into government during Reconstruction. But it's not stated in language that's specific to the Civil War, it's stated more broadly that anybody who falls within its scope, who engaged in insurrection or rebellion, that's the key vocabulary, insurrection or rebellion, or gave aid and comfort to the enemies, the insurrectionists and the rebels, is subject to this disqualification. And I think it's coming back into discussion now because of a realization that despite these four separate indictments of uh, uh, former President Trump, none of them, even if they lead to criminal convictions, are constitutionally disqualifying in terms of his running again for re-election. And I think also in terms of public discussion, the fact that Trump's candidacy in the primaries is already doing so well, according to the polls, there's this, from a political perspective, there's a realistic prospect that he could be the nominee if not disqualified, and the polls uh, even show him, you know, neck and neck against uh, Joe Biden. If that's the general election matchup, again, polls this early may deserve to be discounted. But um, I think people have to contemplate the realistic prospect that former President Trump could win re-election. And then there's this issue of of disqualification. But the criminal statutes don't don't do it. At least the the indictments that. Uh, he's been uh, charged with under the four separate indictments at this point. So I think that's why the separate issue of is he independently disqualified pursuant to this other constitutional provision is part of current discussion. And I think it's worth mentioning, we've also seen a pretty notable piece of scholarship in part because of kind of the political context surrounding it be dropped, not actually in its published form, but kind of its pre-published form on the Social Science Research Network, a very common phenomena for people who don't track this stuff, by William Bode and Michael Paulson. Tell us a little bit about their piece and why it's kind of stirred up this conversation and and led to some ripples uh, in ways that a lot of the prior discussion around this topic, at least from my sense, has not. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, uh, a law review article that will be published but is available now has gotten a huge amount of attention in a New York Times uh, article and uh, and part of one of the Republican presidential debates. It was at least referenced uh, by one of the candidates. And uh, it's not the only piece of scholarship on Section 3, um, but it's probably the most comprehensive. It's a very lengthy piece. And it's by two uh, very well-known and well-regarded law professors, constitutional scholars, who are associated with... um, Sort of the originalist theory of constitutional interpretation uh, and the Federalist Society um, that is more conservative jurisprudence. And they've 
using that methodology, they've gone back to the original sources and, and done this thorough exegesis, uh, yielding their own conclusion that it does apply and that it, uh, it does lead to Trump's disqualification. So uh, that's, that has certainly um, instigated a lot of, uh, of the discussion in the last couple of weeks. And give a little more credibility, I think, to the idea that that this Supreme Court might even view this issue this way, despite what might one might think about their political priors because of this originalist angle. No, I, I mean, it is a it is a very uh, well written law review article. It's you know very strong scholarship. Um, I, I think uh, there's been some counter arguments already in public discourse by other noted uh, constitutional scholars, including Michael McConnell. And I, I think one has to acknowledge that uh, there are you know, strong arguments on both sides. I, I think this, as you said, this Law Review article does increase the likelihood that the current Supreme Court could reach that conclusion, but it's not open and shut in either direction in the Supreme Court, I don't think. Now, of course, the 14th Amendment was written shortly after the Civil War, enacted in an era where the United States looked very different, and particularly U.S. elections looked very different, were managed very different. Derek, you made the point recently on Election Law Blog that those differences really can matter in a lot of different contexts, and might that might include how exactly you would implement Section 3 or how Section 3 might affect things. Tell us a little bit about those differences and how they might enter into the equation here. Sure. Um, so it's great to be here. And yeah, opening with Section 3. So again, there, there's lots of things that people are discussing and debating about what Section 3 means and how it applies. You know, it says no person shall be or sh- should be an elector for president of the United States or, or vice president or hold any office under the United States. So it's sort of this office um, holding requirement. But in order to get into one of those offices, right? Sometimes it might be that you are appointed to that office in Congress and Congress has to ratify your your selection, or you might be hired or whatever it might be. Uh, But when you're running for office, it's a little bit different. And in 1868, we can think about what running for office looked like. Um, And for presidential elections, it was, uh, you know, some uh, convention would get together in a city, it would uh, bring Republicans or Democrats from all over the United States together together at a convention hall. There would be a series of ballots where they would vote on who the nominee is, who the vice presidential nominee is. Um, and from that point, they would sort of run out to their states and the state parties would pick slates of electors, presidential electors who they think are going to support this ticket. Um, and then the parties are printing tickets and they're printing tickets with their candidates' names at the top of it and a list of all the presidential electors below. Um, and they're handing those tickets out to party faithful who are going to then show up on election day and cast their ballots. Um, and when it gets to Congress, Congress uh, counts those votes uh, or, it, well, the electors meet, they cast their votes that are then sent to Congress and Congress uh, then you know ascertains the winner and declares who the winner is. So that that's a very different era than where we are today, right? Today, the state is much more involved. We're talking about this, you know, in in late 2023, in part because there's a presidential primary that is gearing up, um, where where states are administering primary ballots for delegates to this convention rather than just party individuals showing up at, in uh, in the host city each year or every four years. Uh, they are uh, administering the names that get to appear on that ballot because the state 
prints the ballot. It is deciding, uh, you know, you apply to get on the ballot. Sometimes you pay a fee or sometimes you get a number of signatures to get on the ballot. Um, and then uh, in the general election, we don't even list the names of the electors anymore. We, uh, in most states, most states, we just list the president and vice president. And then when the electors gather, uh, sometimes they can be replaced or lose their job if they try to vote for somebody other than that candidate who appears in the ticket. So there are all these additional steps and stages of the process where the state has inserted itself into the election process. I mean, it's probably okay for it to do so. Um, the, the Constitution doesn't say a whole lot about the role of states in administering presidential elections. The legislature gets to direct the manner of appointing electors. That's about it. And that's developed a lot over the years. But it does point out that today, as we're thinking about administering or implementing something like Section 3 in a presidential election, again, setting aside all the discussions that we can have about the merits or its application to presidential elections or whatever it might be, we are trying to apply that to a process with a lot more state involvement, a lot more steps of state officials than we had in 1868. So it just it creates a different kind of complexity um, and a different kind of pressure on the, the the election selection apparatus that is sort of administering the ballot that is also tasked with determining uh, questions like eligibility in these cases. So, Ned, you know, before we can really start talking about how we would go about implementing this requirement, there's kind of a, a step zero to the analysis in my mind, something that Bode and Paulson get out of their piece that a few other pieces have gotten at, in part because there is uh, this case, Griffin's case, that kind of hangs over this question. That, that's the issue of self-execution, the idea as to whether the disqualification under Section 3 is freestanding and applies the same way as the age requirement for the presidency that's in the Constitution, meaning you know it's there on the books and a variety of ways implemented, even though it's not expressly implemented any particular way, or whether it needs to be implemented by statute. That's more or less the conclusion that Chief Justice Damon Chase seemed to reach in Griffin's case way back when. Uh, although it's worth noting that's not he wasn't doing so as you know representing the Supreme Court it was in a, in a different capacity. Bowden Paulson say, ignore Griffin's case. It's just wrong. This thing's self-executing. And I, and I think that's probably where the bulk of opinion falls on this. But how should we be thinking about the self-executing question? How does it enter into this equation? And uh, what do you think is the right way to approach that question if we're interested in seeing, trying to apply Section 3 where Section 3 actually should apply? Yeah, this is a really crucial question. Um, and I think it's complicated. Uh uh, there's sort of a fork in the road in terms of the legal analysis. Um, and although the language that is being used is about, is this provision self-executing or not, the way I view it analytically, it's whether or not sort of Congress has exclusive legislative authority to make this provision effective to activate it, as opposed to whether or not states can legislate the enforcement of the disqualification independently. Derek mentioned that state legislatures have Article Two of the U.S. Constitution uh, authority to determine the manner of appointing presidential electors. So they have their own independent legislative authority to determine the, a wide swath of rules relating to presidential elections. And Derek has talked about how the states have done that. And so I don't think the issue, I mean, some people seem to think about whether or not this provision if it's self-executing means that sort of everybody in government must make sure that it's that it's enforced. You know, maybe some people have that view, but I think there's a middle ground position. Um, for example, I'm, I'm not sure any state 
official like a secretary of state or a local elections board or a state judge could enforce it without prior legislative authority from the state legislature. You know, that's a question about the Article II power that belongs to state legislatures to implement presidential elections. And you don't have to believe in a robust version of the so-called independent state legislature doctrine that the U.S. Supreme Court rejected uh, in a decision, you know, earlier this year to realize that state legislatures do have some authority here and, and maybe administrative officials and judges can't act in the presidential election context without some prior approval from the state legislature, either explicit or implicit in one way or another. And so then, to my mind then, what is really going on with this issue of so-called self-executing power or not and the role of the Griffins case that you mentioned from the 19th century is whether or not Congress has a kind of exclusive legislative authority under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to control any procedures having to do with this disqualification such that no state legislation could be independently authoritative without prior congressional approval. And again, this is I understand this is very legalistic and complicated. I, I think there's no doubt that Congress has preemptive legislative authority. Um, in other words, if there's a congressional sta- were there to be a congressional statute that said these are the procedures for thinking about disqualification, this is how it's done, it's done in federal court, the de- Justice Department has to be involved, whatever, this is all hypothetical because no such statute exists, you know, that would clearly be controlling because of Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, giving Congress the power to enforce other parts of the 14th Amendment, including Section 3. But the question is whether in the absence of any congressional legislation of that nature, can states enforce Section 3 disqualification on their own? It's a little bit analogous to listeners who might be familiar with the so-called Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which had nothing to do with elections, but has to do with the relationship of state legislative power and federal legislative power. And there, there's evolved an understanding that states can act until they're displaced uh, by Congress through preemptive federal legislation under the Commerce Clause and the Supremacy Clause, but that states don't have to get permission from Congress ahead of time to legislate on commercial and economic activities, even ways that could affect interstate commerce. So to my mind, the crucial question that the U.S. Supreme Court will have to decide, or one crucial question, is whether or not states can have this independent legislative authority without prior congressional approval. One more word about the Griffin case. I think the Griffin case, which the court would have to deal with is distinguishable. You know, there's, I think the, the Baud and Paulson, art, Paulson article want a repudiation of Griffin and maybe it deserves to be repudiated, but I don't know that it has to be repudiated completely because the context in which that case was decided involved a, a, an entirely different issue involving a, a criminal prosecution by a state judge. And the question was whether the state judge uh, was subject to the Section 3 disqualification provision. If he was, then was this criminal prosecution ultra-virus or not ultra-virus? And one could argue that maybe, you know, you, there would need to be legislation that would somehow stop a, a, a state criminal trial like that, that that's very different from the kind of ballot legislation question that Derek was mentioning there. Uh, the Griffin case might just be thought to be in, inapplicable in that context. So before we dig too deep into the route that I know Ned has looked at 
uh, and thought about about how we might be able to get this issue to the Supreme Court. Let me turn to you, Derek, on, on, a, on a related question, which is that when we talk about this qualification questions, who is it who gets to decide those issues currently? What are the pressure points in the election process that if you were to have a candidate who were you know, not a U.S. national or did not meet the age requirements, were otherwise disqualified on other grounds that no one disputes or very rarely is disputed whether they apply to somebody or not, much more self-evident. What are the usual pressure points that that might come into play and that we could see come into play here as well? Sure. So it's actually really fascinating when you trace the history of this. And, and I think in recent memory, we've seen some of the more controversial questions arise with Ted Cruz's eligibility in 2016. You know, he's born in Canada to a, a Cuban citizen and an American mother. And so there was this question about his eligibility. And before that, a lot of conspiracy theories about Barack Obama's uh, origin story. Um, so there, there have actually been a lot of recent challenges on this issue. But you can trace back to the late 19th century, once the state begins printing the ballot, uh, questions about what what happens to these ineligible candidates, candidates who are 27 years old, candidates who are um, not even US citizens, much less natural born. Um, And you see actually a mix of the way that states have approached this issue. In some states, and at different eras, um, they don't patrol the issue at all. Underage citizens, uh, non-citizens appear on the ballot, there's no state mechanism to enforce that. Um, the state legislature has thought it's it just deemed it not not appropriate to patrol that, whatever that might be. Uh, and so these candidates will appear on the ballot and they'll get votes. Um, you know, they've never carried any electoral votes, but uh, they, they at least appear on the ballot. In other jurisdictions, however, the state does have mechanisms for examining these things. And the most common, uh, I, I think, pressure point is to think about some administrative tribunals that arise that are sort of created to determine the eligibility of candidates to appear on the ballot. And by eligibility, I mean that very broadly. The most common way that these tribunals are formed, and they're even or odd-numbered commissions of of, uh, sometimes elected officials, sometimes people specifically who are election administrators, who try to figure out, you know, if if you're trying to get 100 signatures to appear on the ballot, did you get 100 uh, from eligible voters and whatever it might be? If you met those requirements, are you qualified to appear? Um, And then in other jurisdictions, uh, this tribunal is sometimes asked, you know, uh, well, does this person meet the qualifications to appear on the ballot, such as you need to be a resident of the legislative district in order to serve in the state assembly? Um, has, Has this person resided in the district for the requisite period of time? If so, they can appear on the ballot. Um, And then in in other places, they will examine these questions about whether or not you've met the eligibility requirements under the Constitution. And um, we've seen recently with some congressional cases in in North Carolina and in Georgia, and Georgia was an administrative law judge that actually had the hearing. Uh, There were cases in 2016 in, in Indiana involving the election commission and New Hampshire involving an election commission. So there are these commissions that decide the questions. Usually it's not the Secretary of State that has the first shot, although sometimes the Secretary of State will sort of as approve the form of the paperwork that comes in. Um, sometimes the questions will then be appealed from that that tribunal to the Secretary of State. That's the, the setup in Georgia from an administrative law judge to the Secretary of State. And then after that, usually uh, if there's still a question, then people will run to state court because the state courts, again, are often tasked with enforcing state law, including making determinations about 
whether or not the, the committee had jurisdiction or an appeal from the decision of that committee, even though we're deciding intensely questions of federal law here, right? We're deciding these questions about whether or not somebody meets, uh, you know, is prohibited under the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So there's also a potential avenues to think about going into federal court, depending on the timing, depending on uh, whether or not there are abstention doctrines that the federal courts are nervous about intervening if there's a state ballot access process playing out. So I, I think the, the most common route that we'll see in the in the months ahead will be after candidates have filed challenges in front of secretaries of state or these election commissions followed by state court litigation. Um, but we might also see some federal court litigation that has a shot going forward to the extent that the candidate is trying to uh, prevent the, the the Secretary of State from making a decision, prevent the election commission from adjudicating the case. But it's really anybody's guess <laughs> about the route uh, through through which this might go. So Ned, in a recent piece in the Washington Post, you made the case for a particular route. Um, if I recall correctly, you acknowledge you might see a state official like a Secretary of State take a particular action to disqualify someone. I suppose you could also see one of these administrative bodies or a state judge do that depending on how the state law and process works. But you raised the point and make the case that it actually be much better for a state legislature to enact a law implementing this and for that law to be then brought to the Supreme Court. Flesh that out for us. Why do you think that's the most solid way of bringing this issue about Section 3 disqualification to the Supreme Court. And I should note, we're specifically talking about in relation to former President Trump in this case. Obviously, there are other people who could or would be disqualified in relation to January 6th other than him that this wouldn't necessarily be as specific a concern for. But for him, you propose this particular route. Why is that? Yeah, um, thanks. So the, the primary motivation by behind the column is to have this issue settled on the merits one way or the other before the election. I think we're going to talk uh, later on this podcast about whether or not Congress has the power to disqualify Trump hypothetically after he's won uh, the Electoral College and when Congress meets to count the electoral votes, could they then say, well, he got the votes, but he can't serve as president because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I think that would be a huge constitutional crisis that would be extremely perilous for the, na- the nation, and voters would rightly feel um, that they had been robbed of uh, the ballots that they had cast, uh, again, hypothetically, if Trump had been the winner for Congress to say that they were going to nullify the election. So I, I think just in the interest of you know electoral fairness into the process, that this issue should be settled. Either yes, he's qualified and go forward under that basis, or no, he's not qualified and and then go forward on that basis, either way, but to know it before voters vote, certainly before voters vote in November of 2024. I I know we're likely to see uh, litigation in connection with the primary process, um, but for reasons that have to do with this Article II power of state legislatures and the way in which primary elections in a presidential context are just very different uh, leading up to the convention, I, I think uh, for constitutional reasons, it's just really important that this be done so that we know what the ballot looks like for November of uh, 2024 and that the Republicans, when they meet in their convention next July, either know he's qualified or disqualified uh, by that point, even if some primaries have, have happened where he's been on uh, on the ballot. So, so that's the reason why I, I'd like to see a procedure that allows for a timely resolution by the U.S. Supreme Court on the merits, not deflecting it procedurally because somebody doesn't have standing or it's just not procedurally proper. 
And to my mind, having a state legislature explicitly clarify that they want some process, likely a judicial process, that has due process that allows for appropriate fact-finding, and Trump could defend himself and explain why he doesn't believe he's disqualified. Explicit state legislation on this point, I think, gives us the maximum chance of avoiding any procedural derailment. It still has that issue of the Griffins case out there that we talked about. I mean, if, if the Supreme Court were to say that a state law of this nature can't exist without prior congressional authorization, then the state legislation would be ineffectual. I think that would be disastrous for the reasons that we'll get to later. But, but you know, no, nothing can, can guarantee success in, unless the Supreme Court agrees with this understanding of the relationship of Article II and state legislative power uh, in this context. But the reason why I think a state legislature should clarify this is because of what Derek has already said about how existing procedures vary considerably from state to state and really weren't built with Section 3 in mind, the kinds of um, fact-finding that these administrative tribunals have to do about, is someone a citizen, what their age is, do they have enough signatures? As, as you said, Scott, that's much more self-evident. <laughs> it's not nearly as momentous as a fact-finding about whether the former president sufficiently engaged in an insurrection event to you know, disqualify him. That And so... I think that suggests that uh, if a state legislature really wants their officials to make this determination, they could could clarify that. It, it is possible that, that existing state laws, maybe in New Hampshire, maybe Georgia, what have you, are adequate to the task and, and a proper interpretation of state law would conclude that. But that seems very risky if we're really worried about a potential constitutional crisis uh, down the road. And I even think there's some risk that the Supreme Court could invent something like a clear statement rule or an analogy to the so-called major questions doctrine. The, you know, the court is capable of deflecting hard issues if they think that people haven't sort of dotted their I's and crossed their T's in terms of forcing the federal judiciary to decide a, you know, really momentous constitutional question. So, you could imagine the Supreme Court saying, well, theoretically, state legislative power might exist in this context without prior congressional approval, but we're not going to go down that road until a state legislature has made it unambiguous that they want to assert that kind of power. So that's why I think a state legislature, and it really only takes one to get it to the U.S. Supreme Court, but if one state legislature said, you know, we really want to do this, I think that's the best way to tee up a, a decision in advance of the election. Yeah, let me jump in and point out, I, I think Ned's right about the, the perils of this process. <laughs> and, you know, you, you see states that are relying on somewhat ambiguous statutes sometimes in, in interpreting their, their authority. Uh, sometimes they talk about qualifications, but it's not clear that they mean federal qualifications. It really seems like they're talking about state qualifications. We've seen a lot of these cases involving, again, as I mentioned earlier, Barack Obama and Ted Cruz that are thrown out on procedural grounds um, for a variety of reasons. Um, even recently, there was a challenge to um, try to keep some candidates off the ballot in, in congressional elections in Arizona. Uh, and the Arizona Supreme Court came out with a decision saying, well, actually, the way we construe our statute says that this is not a basis for uh, an adjudication 
to exclude a candidate on the ba- uh, off on the ballot, uh, an interpretation of Section Three. So that was a, an, an adverse precedent, if you will, for proponents of the Section Three theory in in Arizona last year. So so there's plenty of opportunities, I think, for procedural pitfalls, not just standing, but other jurisdictional issues and statutory interpretation issues in the states. But beyond that, I think. Ned's right that we want a a reasoned process. And in a lot of states, there's a very short window between when the filing deadline ends and when the ballot printing begins. And that's deliberately so. We don't want to have this sort of long dead period, if you will, where you have to file super early and then nothing really happens until the ballots are printed months and months later. We want candidates to be able to enter the race relatively close to the election. And that means there's a pretty narrow window for challenges to be brought. And it's not great if the challenge is uh, brought in a, in a process where you have only limited time and avenues to have hearings. Um, you know, in, in Georgia, where there was this hearing uh, last year involving a congressional candidate, uh, it took basically a full day for an administrative law judge to, to hear the evidence, at least in that case. And you're thinking about a presidential candidate, and you're thinking about layers of review, then going to the state courts where there was then some pretty perfunctory um, decisions that were issued. Um, it's not an ideal place to be without uh, thinking uh, strategically about uh, the airing of these issues to the extent that we want to get over some of the procedural hurdles into the substance. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, 
I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you two have made a pretty compelling case that having a state, and particularly a state legislature, take the first step to disqualify former President Trump or any other person who might be running for president who's covered by potentially Section 3, and then having that appeal up is the fastest, most effective and clearest route to getting a resolution of this issue by the U.S. Supreme Court. But let me throw a few hypotheticals at you about if that doesn't come to pass, which is a possibility, uh, certainly around this issue. Let's say that we don't see any state measures, because we've covered with kind of state officials and state legislatures potentially doing this. Let's say former President Trump remains on the ballot, and we then get to the point where we get the electors casting their electoral votes. We know about the phenomenon of unfaithful electors uh, who vote for somebody other than the candidate that they were sort of represented or elected to vote for. And there are state laws that prohibit that in some states that that aren't that don't exist in other states. To what extent is an elector able to, or perhaps even obligated to, exercise whatever discretion they have available to them to not vote for an eligible candidate? And can state laws still restrict them from doing so, or do they restrict them from doing so? Derek, let me start with you on this. 
Boy, we're getting we're getting into the mess now. I mean, <laughs> we like the weeds here on the podcast. It's what we do. Uh, I mean, this is obviously real, really um, challenging for a variety of reasons. Um, so let's start with the practical. Um, presidential electors are pretty closely vetted by the parties uh, these days. Uh, there are varying degrees, even in states without sort of faithless elector laws. Let's set it aside for a moment. Um, it's just very, very difficult to convince. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, six Republican electors in Iowa picking any one of them to say, like, you should not vote for Donald Trump for president, even though he was the party nominee and he carried the state, you should not vote for him because he's ineligible to be president. That is just a very heavy lift. Um, and you've seen this in a, in a wide variety of contexts where, um, you know, in 2016, there were a number of faithless electors on sort of both sides of the aisle. In ways that were sort of uh, empty gestures, I think, in a way they were sort of suggesting that they wanted to protest the the moment, but really didn't affect anything. Uh, and you occasionally will see this throughout history elsewhere, um, but very rarely do we see in the contemporary era uh, electors exercising that independent judgment to evaluate the, the qualifications of candidates. Um, you know, in in my judgment, is it within their authority to do so, uh, absent a state law? I think so. I just view it as a very practical. Very, very low likelihood. <laughs> Again, uh, we, we see that the parties are very careful about who is are in these positions, and particularly with the number of defections that happened in 2016, I think they're even more careful. On top of that, yeah, you do have these statutes that say, and again, they're 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 facially neutral, uh, if you will. The Supreme Court has approved them that you must vote for the candidate who you are pledged to support. Or in Arizona, there's actually a slight wrinkle. It's the candidate who receives the most popular votes in the state. And the Supreme Court, in a couple of cases, uh, Chiafalo versus Washington and uh, Colorado Department of State versus Baca, um, has said, yeah, you can uh, fine individuals. You can actually replace them if they attempt to violate that obligation placed upon them. And then <laughs> I can imagine electors, right, pushing back and saying, well, wait a minute, I have an obligation to support a candidate who uh, is ineligible or who at least I believe is ineligible or I want to question their ineligibility, their eligibility when we meet in late December of 2024. Um, I don't know that, you know, that's, that's, uh, uh, you're, uh, trying to figure out which oath, you know, takes precedence. The electors obviously have this oath to support the constitution of the United States, but at the same time, um, does that obligation necessarily fall on them in that moment to enforce it as opposed to other officials in the system, in the pipeline, up against the state obligations that can, haven't really anticipated these kinds of exercises of judgment. Again, I think practically there's a reason why we don't see this very often, and I think we're likely to see it even less so uh, these days. But it, it would not surprise me to see a pressure campaign uh, brought to bear, uh, as we've seen in other other eras, uh, pressure campaign on electors in, in late December of 2024. And to Ned's point, that's not a position we want anybody to be in. <laughs> we, we, we don't want to be waiting until after the election to be thinking about resolving these issues or having other actors in the system trying to resolve them. Well, now that I've thrown one curveball at Derek, let me throw one at you, Ned, because uh, of course there is that other possibility um, that we've talked a lot about, including actually the three of us on this podcast on multiple times. That was a big concern in 2020, which is that Congress or perhaps even the vice president might exercise some degree of control over the outcome of an election after having received the electoral votes to some degree. And the question of qualification and eligibility enters into that equation, at least hypothetically. 
Do we think there is some ability or might be some ability for the members of Congress in counting the electoral votes or perhaps the vice president in kind of managing that session to exercise their own authority to say, no, Section 3 disqualification disqualifies a particular candidate? And and particularly, has that been affected by the fact that we've seen actual real change in this area of law through the Electoral Count Reform Act, a law we've talked about on this podcast before, that is specifically intended to narrow the discretion of those officials and that body uh, over a variety of issues that I think would include a lot of disqualification issues such as this? How do those two things intersect in this case? Yeah, so this is, I think, the really important point that deserves a lot of attention. Um, the Electoral Count Reform Act was a crucial piece of legislation, and uh, you know I'm really glad that you featured it on you know on Lawfare both in print and on podcasts and, and in so many ways. But it solved a different problem than this one. Um, the problem that it solved was the risk of congressional repudiation of who the electors are that were appointed pursuant to state law based on the popular vote. That's not this issue, right? I mean, it, it, the, the scenario that we're contemplating is that you know Trump would have won the popular vote in enough states uh, that electors were appointed, pledged to him, and as Derek has said, that we can expect that they would fulfill their pledge unless Trump has been disqualified. And by the way, just a quick addition on the Chiafalo case that Derek mentioned, I think Chiafalo is actually pretty strong support for the authority of state legislatures to pass the kind of law that I'm talking about, because if if state legislatures can force electors to obey a pledge to support their party's nominee, you'd think they'd also have legislative authority to say, we want these pledged electors to, to be faithful to someone who is actually qualified to serve. So in managing the nature of being a pledged elector, they could say we, we're going to also have some procedures to make sure they're pled, these electors are pledged to a qualified candidate. But in any event, if we haven't had that disqualification in advance, then we can expect that the, ple- the electors will vote uh, according to the popular vote in their state, and those electoral votes will be sent to Congress. And there won't be any uh, basis under the new Electoral Count Reform Act to repudiate the appointment of the electors. That has been you know, foreclosed by the details of that statute, which we could discuss again, but we're really, again, for a different topic. And again, under the hypothetical that we're talking about, nobody's disputing that Trump actually won these the popular vote in these states. So the grounds for the constitutional objection to Trump's electoral college victory would would not be on the appointment of the electors, but but who the electors cast their votes for. And there's a separate clause that's in the Electoral Count Reform Act that Derek knows very well from his scholarship that's a holdover from the previous law that talks about objecting to electoral votes for the independent reason that they were not regularly given. And what does that mean? It's sort of a term of art. I'll let Derek talk more about it. But it, there's at least a risk that members of Congress who sincerely believe that uh, Trump is disqualified could invoke that particular clause to say Trump is not allowed to be inaugurated. There's also the additional wrinkle of the 20th Amendment, which governs you know, the fact that their presidential terms end uh, at noon on January 20th. And if there's been no uh, qualified 
uh, president-elect, then the vice president becomes acting president and so forth. And so in addition to the 12th Amendment creating the joint session of Congress where the Senate president presides, so in other words, the vice president of the United States, there is this separate constitutional obligation to follow the 20th Amendment, which you know, was not at issue in the Electoral Count Reform Act discussion, because again, we weren't talking about 20th Amendment issues. So, and, and the reason why I mentioned that is my, my judgment, and this is a point made in the uh, Baud Paulson argument, with an article, which I think is correct. You know, were Congress to try to disqualify Trump on January 6, 2025, which again, I think would be a constitutional crisis and a political crisis for the country, but were that Congress to take that vote, the the correct thing that has to happen, in my judgment, is actually to count those votes as if he was equivalent to being deceased, because you can't reach the conclusion that nobody achieved a majority of electoral votes to send the election to the contingent procedure under the Twelfth Amendment involving an election by the House of Representatives, right? That when you know if you if you had a, a two-way tie between candidates where they each get 269 electoral votes, we know the House uh, gets to pick the president under this very arcane procedure that was done last in 1824. We know if there's three candidates who split electoral votes, so that nobody gets 270 goes to the House of Representatives and they can choose among all three of those candidates. But let's say only two candidates get electoral votes, two presidential candidates gets electoral votes. If you took the interpretation that you're disqualifying all the votes that were above 270 that were for Trump and that the only other candidate that got electoral votes was Biden, but they're below 270, you'd send the election to the House of Representatives where they only have one candidate to choose, Biden. I think that's not the right way to understand the, the relationship of the 12th Amendment and the 20th Amendment. Instead, you have to say that Trump got more than 270 electoral votes, but he's independently disqualified, as he would be if he was 30 years old or if he wasn't a citizen. And therefore, under the 20th Amendment, you know, he can't be inaugurated despite winning the Electoral College. And therefore, you know, the vice president-elect becomes acting president on at noon on January 20th. But because there's some ambiguity in the relationship of the 12th and the 20th Amendment in this regard, and there's some ambiguity even in the revised Electoral Count Reform Act about how you deal with these electoral votes and an objection on the basis that they weren't regularly given, but tie that into the 20th Amendment, I just think this is very fraught with peril, both as a matter of constitutional process and then the political reality of the winner being disqualified by Congress makes this the ultimate nightmare that we should avoid if we can at all costs. Derek, what about that point that Ned raised to circle back to that about the potential of invoking the regularly given language that has lingered in the Electoral Count Act slash Reform Act? How might that enter into this sort of equation? Again, I think uh, so the Electoral Count Reform Act I think is helpful on a couple of points. Um, you know, one is that it, it, it's not appropriate for Congress to do what it's been doing, uh, which is using this language or suggesting that the the electoral votes should not be counted as if the electors were improperly appointed in these states. That's not re- what people really mean. The regularly given c- can relate to questions like qualifications, but uh, yeah, I think that this this language from the Twentieth Amendment is. Um, 
curious and <laughs> I think yeah, I think creates the right kind of thing. I think Ned's described it right, but it, but is this language if the president elect shall have failed to qualify, then the vice president elect shall act as president until a president shall have qualified. And so that suggests that Congress is supposed to go ahead and count. And I think this is what uh, Mike Paulson and Will Boat are pointing out that you go ahead and count these votes. Um, but then at the end of the day, you say, well, these people have not qualified for the office. Donald Trump is not qualified because in our judgment, he has failed to qualify under the provision of, of the, of, of the 14th amendment that applies to him. And therefore you have acting vice president or acting president, Carrie Lake or uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, or I, I don't know, <laughs> you can fill in your, the fill in the blank here. I, I think it creates tremendous pressure at that point to think about how this even plays out in the two weeks between January 6th and January 20th, where Congress has counted votes, but is acting under the impression that that the president has not qualified under the 20th Amendment and what that even looks like. Uh, again, these are questions we haven't really ever had to deal with, uh, certainly not since the 20th Amendment was adopted. And the, the the questions about what Congress does with this stuff are are complicated and fraught. And I think there's going to be a temptation for many in Congress to say, well, if, if Trump is not qualified, uh, then we want to figure out a way to um, ensure that Joe Biden wins, which I, I don't think is the right answer to the 20th Amendment, but is certainly how some of the, the precedents in the mid 19th century played out. So I, I think there's, there's, a lot of uh, complexity and challenges that are coming down the pike that, you know, we, we could say we, we can leave uh, tomorrow. It'll have enough trouble of its own, uh, these kinds of issues. But um, it is not something <laughs> that I think any of us want to see uh, play out over the next uh, 15, 18 months. Fair point. Fair point. Well, before we part for the day, I, I want to take a step back from former President Trump and from the presidency itself and just think a little bit briefly about how Section 3 could also apply or impact other office holders or potential office holders. Derek, let me start with you on the federal side, because it strikes me there's at least two types of office that raise questions about how it would apply that may not even be as straightforward, which is not very straightforward in the first place as, as applying to the presidency. Um, one would be members of Congress, in part because Congress under the Constitution, as I recall and understand it, has a lot of discretion and authority in regulating the qualifications of its own members. And a second would be federal judges who, of course, are appointed for a life tenure, barring impeachment in most cases. What are the routes that we could see Section 3 apply if we found a person to whom Section 3 did apply, or we believe it might apply, holding one of those offices, setting aside whether, you know, them getting elected as a candidate, but actually holding the office. Yeah. So on the congressional side, um, you know, I wrote long ago, long before these issues, uh, that I don't think states actually have the power to exclude ineligible candidates from the ballot. This is not a popular view, <laughs> uh, but but at least for when it comes to Congress. Um, and that, that comes from a few different clauses of the constitutions and practices over the years. One is that Congress is the judge of the elections, qualifications, and returns of its own members. Um, and as the judge, this is an exclusive authority kind of reserved to them and to nobody else to determine qualifications. The representatives are chosen by the people. Uh, and the notion that the state would have this intermediary role between the people and Congress, which again, the, the reason why Congress judges elections and qualifications is that is this sort of unfettered access to the people's preferences and to 
be able to evaluate their choices. Um, that's very different from presidential elections where the legislature gets to direct the manner of appointing electors, that the there is this manner of holding elections provision for the times, places, manner of holding congressional elections. And I don't think that manner provision, it certainly doesn't allow states to add qualifications. And likewise, I don't think it allows states to evaluate qualifications. Um, so th- th- that's at least my view. Um, that's been rejected in some courts. and uh, with, with that, But there have been some dissenting judges on these points to suggest that maybe maybe this is a matter reserved for Congress. But certainly in, in uh, 2020, there was a hearing involving a congressional candidate in Georgia. Uh, again, the, the state tribunal was evaluating her qualifications under Section 3. So th- there is some precedent that has cut the other way, at least given last year's uh, experience. But I, I think there is potentially some bigger daylight between congressional elections and presidential elections than uh, people might otherwise suggest. Uh, when it comes to judges... Um, I actually don't know. That's, I, I don't know if, uh, if Ned or somebody else has a question. It talks about how you can't um, hold an office under uh, the United States. I don't know if the judiciary fits as office in the United States. We're usually think about that as uh, executive officers. If that's the case, then I think it's really left to the, to the Senate when they are confirming nominees. But again, you have this provision that says two-thirds vote of each house can remove the disability under Section 3, but to be appointed as a judge really only takes a majority of the Senate, um, you know, subject to filibuster rules and whatnot. So there is potentially, again, some daylight like we might see with congressional elections or presidential elections in what Congress chooses to do versus the sort of two-thirds requirement um, put in place by Section 3. So uh, I guess I haven't really thought out (laughs) the uh, judicial side of things um, and maybe would assume that if you are at least uh, involved in some insurrection-adjacent behavior, shall we say, uh, that the the Senate would not be inclined to confirm you. But but maybe I'm wrong on that, and maybe there's uh, some other uh, daylight that might uh, arise in how the Senate tries to handle these kinds of questions. Uh, Again, not an issue I've I've really thought much about, but um, one more wrinkle to the process, I suppose. And of course, it's not just federal officials that could face disqualification. State officials can as well under Section 3. So now let me turn to you on that. Do we have a sense? I mean, I suspect it's a, it's a wide array of answers across different states, across different offices. But are there areas where you're going to see you know, different sorts of processes and different deciders for who is disqualified under Section 3 within the states? You know, Is this a question that ultimately is going to be decided for state purposes by state legislatures in some case that might have a similar state law authority like the federal Congress does to regulate its own membership? Are some of these issues going to be ultimately decided by the state Supreme Court as opposed to the federal Supreme Court? You know, How do we see this uh, standard being applied across the states? And is there a risk or concern of there being somewhat balkanized results where different states, different processes might yield different understandings of Section 3 that may be harder to bring back ultimately to the Supreme Court for a final, sole standard, unified resolution? Well, we've already seen uh, one uh, county level uh, official disqualified in a state court proceeding under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This was in New Mexico. Um, uh, This was an individual who actually was at the Capitol uh, on January 6th. whose last name was also Griffin, not the same Griffin in the case that we were talking about from the 19th century. But uh, so we, you know, there may be other examples of whether people run for the state legislature or, or 
and, and the, the court that had that case uh, viewed a county level office as within the scope of the Section 3 prohibition because county level officials qualified as state government officials for purposes of, of the provision, uh, at least in New Mexico. Um, you know, I, I think that on most key questions of interpretation of Section 3, we don't have to worry too much about balkanization of, of, of the kind that you fear. That, again, there could be a variety of different procedural avenues, depending on state law. And even though the New Mexico case did not go to federal court, to my knowledge, ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court has review authority on any issue of federal law, even if it comes through the state judicial system and has been involved in the state administrative system. There could be this abstention doctrine that Derek talked about that would keep it at a lower federal court for a while. But um, if there's any risk of conflicting state court interpretations of, for example, the basic question was, was January 6, 2021 an insurrection event at the Capitol? Does it, does it constitute an insurrection for purposes of the constitutional language, the U.S. Supreme Court will have jurisdiction uh, to decide that federal question. And once it decides it, that will become the uniform national standard for every office, state or federal, and so forth. Different individuals will lead to different factual issues in terms of being engaged in an insurrection. So somebody who shows up at the Capitol and I mean, the clearest case is obviously if they beat a police officer or actually broke in to the Capitol. Um, I think the facts involving the New Mexico official placed him at the Capitol, but didn't necessarily have him engaged in any violent conduct. And the court there said that was enough to qualify. So you could get somewhat different interpretations depending upon the particular facts. And, if, and Trump is unique in being the only person who might have played a role by not invoking his authority as commander in chief to stop the riot at the Capitol when he could have. So, you know, that would be a unique factual circumstance in terms of his involvement or was it sufficient or not. But if there are two separate cases from different states that's had, that are similar factually in terms of uh, lower level um, individuals, and they seem to be conflicting with, with each other, the Supreme Court should, could take one or both of those cases and set, again, a national standard. This is what we mean by engaging in insurrection, and this is the standard that gets to be applied to everybody, whether Florida or New Hampshire or what have you. And let me let me add one more thing about New Mexico, because I think that, yeah, the, the case involving the other Griffin who was uh, ejected from office um, you know, it's it certainly a, a significant precedent to talk about the application of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to an elected official in the state. It was a quo warranto action, essentially this ability to eject a office holder who's currently holding the office. Um, so th- there is some easier procedural uh, posture, if you will, uh, about the timing of the lawsuit and whatever it might be for somebody who's currently in office, as opposed to some of these ballot access cases we're talking about, um, in addition to sort of the state procedures that apply to state office holders that might look different from federal officers. But he also represented himself pro se. So I, you, know, you, you didn't have counsel sort of making some of the arguments that I imagine uh, you know, are starting to float out there involving Donald Trump. And while his conviction was con- affirmed by the New Mexico Supreme Court, 
well, one, it was after a criminal conviction that he'd already had a, a sort of plea in with the Department of Justice out in D.C. But but second, the New Mexico Supreme Court affirmed it because of procedural issues with his filing. Again, he's filing pro se. He failed to file the kinds of things that were required to perfect an appeal. Um, so it, it's, I think, a significant decision and uh, momentous that it happened. Uh, but, but I also wonder about its translation to uh, other cases around the United States. Um, it, we will wait and see how that plays out because there will be many of these things filed over the next uh, year. Um, but but it's uh, one thing I'm also watching. Well, you both have given us a phenomenally interesting and convoluted roadmap to the future today. Uh, and it's one that I'm sure we'll have opportunities to revisit and walk down in the future. But for the moment, we are out of time. Thank you, Ned Foley, Derek Miller, for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having so us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachahal and produced by Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.